Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. Here at Promo Kitchen, we are proud to be partners with and members of PPAI, the sponsor of today's episode. Today's Promo Kitchen podcast is brought to you by Promotional Products Workweek, which takes place from May the 23rd to May the 27th this year. Promotional Products Workweek is an industry-wide celebration dedicated to increasing awareness, building your business, and uniting our entire industry with one mission, one purpose, and one voice. So from May the 23rd to the 27th, get together with your team, your peers, and your community to meet and greet, serve your community, advocate for the industry, and celebrate your customers and clients during Promotional Products Workweek. For more information, check out ppai.org slash events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by fellow chef, Robert Fiveash, president of Brand Fuel. On today's show, we welcome John Levine, president of the distributor The Image Group, based in Holland, Ohio. John graduated with a degree in accounting from Arizona State University in 1980 and used this experience to establish his early career in the steel industry. In 1991, he shifted his focus towards the promotional products industry when he started The Image Group. Since the founding of the company, John has grown the image group into one of the industry's most respected distributors. Earlier this month, John made headlines with the acquisition of two e-commerce sites, Bag Warehouse and Thirsty Promo. The deal marks the image group's move into the e-commerce world and helps them diversify their customer base. Said Levine in a recent press release, Our customers are increasingly interested in researching and procuring promotional products online. We believe the shift to online purchasing reflects the growing influence that millennial-aged employees are having in company buying decisions. This acquisition helps us remain ahead of that shift. Over the course of this podcast, we will explore this exciting new shift to the online world and how others can learn from John's experiences. Welcome to the podcast, John. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we jump right into it here, John? I want to know how a CPA with nine years of working in the steel industry stumbled upon the promotional products industry. Well, that's probably similar to many people's stories. I was working in the steel distribution industry, and our company had been purchased by a company from Birmingham, Alabama. And when I was offered a wonderful career opportunity in Birmingham, my wife politely told me that she wasn't going to join me and either were the children. So <laughs> at that point, I decided I might prefer remaining with my family in the steel business and started to review options and opportunities and had some friends that had a distributorship. They were good friends of mine as well as uh, friends of our family. So they had made an acquisition about a year prior to that, and they were failing. And we were looking for some input and some help. And long and 
short of it is, is I agreed to come in with an option to purchase a percentage of the company. And right. When I got in there, being a numbers guy, although I should tell you that my whole career has been spent in sales and sales management prior, even though I have an accounting degree and background. Taking a look at it, I didn't realize that my friend's company was technically insolvent. And so after we'd done this deal and I got involved with them, then we had a very short period of time to take a look at how we might be able to change the structure and how we might be able to financially support the company. And in doing so, they had a little division that was just a decorator, screen printing and embroidery and engraving. And uh, myself and one of the brothers of the family that owned it took that little roughly million dollar piece of business and went off on our own and renamed it the image group. And that's how we began in the promotional products industry. And were there commonalities between the steel business and the promotional products business, or were they just completely separate and it didn't matter to you because it was another challenge? At the time, it didn't matter to me. I will tell you there are some things in common. For one, we were distributors. We were not manufacturers of steel. So that's in common. We were in the middle between our manufacturing partners and our clients as we remain in the promotional products company. The other thing is, is one of the things that I've always been convinced is if you use sound sales practices, as long as the product is well received in a marketplace and it's a marketplace that's got scale, that there is opportunity, even if you have no experience in it. So I think those were things that were easy transitions for me. Right. I'm curious, John, how the image group has grown over the years. Has it been completely organic or has it been through a combination of organic and acquisition? It is through a combination. We did a tremendous amount of growth organically. However, geographically, we've always been looking on ways to sustain a 15% annual growth. And we are centered in just a declining geographic area. So in order to accomplish that, although we've had some years of fantastic organic growth, we've also done a few different acquisitions, you know, ranging in size from a million dollars to almost $6 million. And so we've had varying experience with those acquisitions. Most of them don't resemble what they were when we acquired them. We learned a lot about doing due diligence and actually attempting to have results that are similar to what we had planned before the acquisition. But it's a great strategy from our standpoint for growth, especially geographically, if we want to look outside of our Northwest Ohio territory. So, Right. And I can completely appreciate that from a geographic perspective. And if we shift over to the recent acquisitions with Bag Warehouse and Thirsty Promo, of course, those are in pure e-commerce plays. I'd love to dig a little bit more into these acquisitions in terms of understanding whether you were trying to fill out product categories in the online space or whether it was acquiring technology that you didn't have before or whether it was acquiring new customers or maybe all of the above. But can you shed some light on just some of the rationale behind the recent acquisitions? Sure. So I think like many distributors, we've been watching as the online spaces continue to make inroads into the percentage of business that's done in promotional products. At the same time, most of the solutions to getting involved in that space have been very expensive. So this opportunity came across my desk and I took immediate interest to understand it and to see if it was a way for us to, for lack of a better way to put it, experiment in the online space and see what works and how expensive it is and what we might be able to do. It's been a profitable company. It was well run. And, you know, so what we wanted to do is kind of bring it in as our incubator to try and grow 
some online. We certainly want to continue to grow our traditional distributorship, but we believe that's going to be more difficult. And so we're looking at this as a whole other business unit that will allow us to reach people completely outside of our geographic area and through technology that we didn't have. So we're really buying a platform. There was certainly a revenue stream, but it's not necessarily a reoccurring revenue stream. So what we're trying to do now is learn what the heck we bought. And what I mean by that is, is I know nothing about any of these things. You know, what AdWords and SEO, pay-per-click, all the different things that some people have been living for the last five years and developing good business practices around. We've not been doing that. So we're trying to learn that now. Right. We're finding that things are changing. So, you know, if we were to go back even as little time as 12 months, you know, the big conversation was SEO. And now I had breakfast with a friend just a few weeks ago who's in the online space in promotional products, and he said, SEO's dead. He said, this is all pay-per-click now. It's a fast-changing environment. Yep. Uh, yet if we're roughly $20 billion and there's somewhere between 15 and 20% that's moved to this space, and it's the fastest-growing part of our industry that we felt we needed to get into that space. Gosh, John, that is absolutely fascinating. In terms of sort of the expertise involved in the deal or beyond the deal, I knew Mark Ditto growing up back in Virginia Beach. We were uh, same age and ran in slightly different circles, but there definitely were some evenings of overlap that were a lot of fun. Small world. What role is he playing in the new entity, or is he concentrating more on Market Smart? He is concentrating on Market Smart. However, he has been very generous with himself and staff helping us into this transition period. Mark has just been running really fast. He's on the road a lot. He is focused on a vertical and wanted to put his time, attention, and his capital resources towards that. And I had not met him, to my knowledge, before we started discussing this transition. Of course, I still have not met him. This was all done through email and over the phone. So he had a vision, and he started that vision, what I would consider to be pretty early. He created a successful company out of that. And he seems to be just a fantastic man. He actually called me this morning, and I wanted to know why he was calling me at what was about 6 o'clock in California time. And he told me he'd been up since 4.30 because he's got so much on his plate right now. So he's, he's hard driving, working to build his other vertical and put his resources towards that. So this was an interesting transaction from the standpoint of the size or the way it worked. But this is one of those few times where there was actually competition in the transaction. And, you know, oftentimes we're looking at acquisitions and I'm looking at them regularly. And I have to say that 90% of them go a very short distance before we determine it's not a fit. And then of those 10% that go any further, there's still a small chance that that's going to be a good fit for our organization and at the same time for the current owner of the organization. In this particular case, multiple people were interested in it. I think probably for the same reason I was. And so, you know, we had to find what characteristic of this transaction would make it easier and better for Mark to deal with the image group than some of these other people are talking to him. And I think the button that we hit was we made certain that we could write a check at closing and we didn't have to rely on financing and we could make this thing happen quickly. You know, that's been one of the things that I've felt has been successful for me in my career, and that is urgency placing urgency towards high-value transactions. And the other side of that coin is sometimes when you're urgent in these things, you can make mistakes. And so you hope that when you do that, they're not expensive mistakes. But if you let time get in between yourself and the transaction, there's a high likelihood the transaction won't happen or at least won't happen with you. And that, that's been our experience. 
So when this came across my desk, I had an interest in it. I hadn't seen other direct-to-market e-commerce type platforms come across my desk. And so this was basically the first one. We just jumped on it. So how quickly were you able from initial email, initial chat to closing the deal? How quickly did that happen? In the end, it ended up taking eight weeks. However, much of that eight weeks was because of holidays and travel, where there was just not attention being paid to the transaction. You know, after the agreement has essentially been reached, I think it took the pressure off of just getting the thing closed immediately. And then in any transaction, there's always a few unknowns, not things that are actually meaningful to the business nor the results of the business, nothing that's not represented correctly, but just things that are difficult to unwind when you're dealing with technology and lending institutions and everybody else that has to sign off on a transaction. So, you know, I didn't have a lending institution involved in this case. Mark had a lending institution involved and he didn't even owe them money, but because the way all of us sometimes pledge our assets, he still has to get them to sign off, and they were happy to do that. It just takes time for them to do some of those things. Sure, sure. Eight weeks, regardless of whether there are holidays in there, that's really impressive. Good work. So back to kind of these newish entities that are popping up that you're a part of, and others are a part of and, and what these animals actually look like and actually are. I know Mark used to, uh, at least at Bag Warehouse, used to buy a lot of product from the more traditional suppliers like the Hits and the Leads, or I know at least he used to. And while some may see Bag Warehouse and Thirsty Promo as, as kind of suppliers in the industry because they're not traditional distributors, we don't really know what to make of these folks, what we really should call them. They're really just distributors connecting with corporate buyers in a different manner or at least that's kind of my take on it. Am, am I right there, or is there more to it than that? I think you're exactly right. So Mark had a fairly narrow supply chain in this. We at the Image Group have a narrow supply chain for all of our clients' needs. At the Image Group, 75% of all of our purchases came from 30 suppliers in 2015. You know, we want to be certain that we're vetting them. We also felt and have continued to feel that with strong relationships with these people, we can typically work through all transactions so we moved away from any direct importing, I would say somewhere four to five years ago, feeling that our partners working together with us, reducing our risk and using their scale tends to put us in a very similar position. But however, I'm dealing with people I deal with on a daily basis, and I'm not concerned where I'm sending my money off to and whether or not I'm going to get delivery as required. So both Bag Warehouse and Thirsty Promos, there's a total of about 12 different vendors involved, all industry suppliers. The ones you mentioned are some of them. We've had, obviously, people reach out to us. They want us to expand that. We're likely to keep it fairly focused and concentrated. And this is nothing other than another type of distributor going to market for those buyers that are looking for a solution, you know, outside of a traditional distributorship. Well, thanks for clearing that up. I think, you know, anything that's unique or new out there, especially in this industry, for some reason, it gets branded all kinds of different things, usually in a negative light. And it's good to get some clarity around that. So thank you. Anything unique about the technology you acquired with the two recent purchases? Or was it more about the channels, the product categories, and maybe even the integration with the offshore customer service and artwork services? And just to follow up on that one, we hear a lot about a company called Office Beacon in the industry and the various mm -hmm. partnerships they're getting into. We actually use them at BrandFuel for kind of some more mundane tasks like order follow-up. But how important are these types of service providers in terms of the future? for distributors and suppliers alike, and 
you know, in some cases we use these folks as service providers, and in some cases down the road they may look more like competitors of ours. So talk to us about that. Sure. So, you know, you had mentioned Office Beacon, and we've spoken with them. However, we have not been using them yet. And this particular platform, Mark had contracted with Artwork Services on. And so you know, your first point that you're talking about is the platform. And really, this was just a head start. So the image group could have hired anybody to develop a platform at a certain cost, you know, call it 100000 or $200,000. This allowed us to have the platform and a revenue stream that was already working. And so that was part of the appeal of doing that rather than starting creating whatever it is that we thought was the optimal platform. We started our conversations with Office Beacon and with Artwork Services because our knowledge on how much they were supporting our supplier base and then some of the very large distributors, we realized that that model had to have something that was of value to all of them, and we should be looking at it. What I do like about them is that if you have your process down, they can follow process, and it allows you to scale and not necessarily create a variable cost, but to be able to scale, it's really an arbitrage on labor, mm. uh, the way that they're attempting to face our marketplace. They're really attempting to have us engage their employees on our behalf and pay a particular fee per month for those employees. At that point, to me, strictly an arbitrage on labor, what's the cost to hire somebody in, in Holland, Ohio, versus somebody that might be overseas? That being said, they've got a lot of experience in our industry, so they already understand what we're talking about, and we're very interested in learning more and more about how others are interacting with them so that we can determine. We've used one of these companies to do some graphics work that exceeded the capacity that we've had in-house, and we've done it very successfully. So, you know, I continue to look at it as, you know, how can we work some of their capabilities into our models? What we found is is the um, challenge we've had, the hurdle, is getting many people in our management over everybody's for it if it adds to profitability and efficiency until it starts impacting the staff that's reporting to them. And, you know, then all of a sudden, well, you know, if it's a part of our business that I'm responsible for, however, my resources are overseas, I'm not really comfortable. There's There's all these language barriers. There's timing differences. There's I can't look these people in the eye and that type of thing. So I see those completely just as uh, objections. We don't have experience in it yet, but I think that if you have your processes down, what it might lead you to do is to be able to continue your staff that you have currently, but as you grow your business to be able to start migrating some of the additional work over to some of these service providers. John, I want to switch gears and talk about millennials. You mentioned in your press release that Millennials are starting to research and purchase promotional products online, and this is something that you want to make sure that you're capitalizing upon. Are you seeing this trend with your millennial customers right now in the traditional distributorship, like in terms of them pushing back on the more traditional ways that you're selling? I would say yes. You know, First off, we're embracing millennials here. We've got 28 employees now that are part of the millennial culture and age group that represents a little over 40% of our employment. We started to purposely hire younger people. We think they're highly engaged, interested in building their careers, and if we can give them the environment that makes sense that they'll stay and do that for a period of time here. If I'm in the middle of one of our sales meetings and ask the question, how many of you had a client who's sent you a link on a product that they found on 4imprint's site mm -hmm. and asked if you could get that, 
it is without exception, each and every one of our salespeople will raise their hand and have when we right. ask that question. And I think it's only a matter of time before some of these people or their successor when they move on, if they're not in an organization that they remain with, isn't going to make that one last contact with us to see if we can still do it. Right. They're just going to try that transaction and they're going to find out that it's what they're looking for, fast and easy. So we believe that that's a permanent shift. We right. think that there's going to be a high percentage and a growing percentage that goes to online solutions that satisfies the employees. You know, I always talk about I have a 32-year-old son that would pay more to buy something online at 2 in the morning than he would to walk into a brick-and-mortar place or to even speak to somebody over the phone. Right. And I, I think that's not unusual anymore. Right. So we think that's one of the permanent shifts that is going to be impacting, you know, the promotional products business going forward. I mean, we think there's a lot of permanent shifts, but that's one of the ones that I think is going to have one of the more dramatic impacts. And when you look at your employee base right now, the image group, what role do you see for the traditional B2B salesperson over the next five years? I think it continues to be good. At least, you know, I can speak for the image group. Most of our people are pretty successful. So at the image group side of it, we essentially have about 20, 18 or 19 sales resources and they average a little over a million dollars each. So it's a little different than many of the distributors who are selling at a smaller level, but highly successful at doing that. What we found is that they all have a tremendous opportunity in growing their book of business if they'll organize themselves more. And one of the things that we've just done this year in January, believe it or not, we grew to 20 million without ever having anybody with a full-time responsibility in overseeing sales. So right. we've hired our first director of sales and he has already begun to work with those that are interested in how to build a pipeline and how to develop you know, the contact points right. and make a difference. And it's making a difference already. And it's, we're only 60 days into it. So right. I think we'll still have the opportunity to do that. The question is, is will I have to spread myself geographically in my traditional distributorship to continue to grow the company? You know, right. When you're sitting in areas like Toledo, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Columbus, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio is the only growing economy out of that. Right. And so there's not a lot left to penetrate in the area that we're at. So John, if I heard you correctly, it's interesting to hear you say you hadn't had a director of sales until now. We are in a similar situation in our company, and we're considering it as well. I'm curious what it was about today's environment that had you finally kind of pull the trigger on that. What precipitated that when maybe in the past you'd considered it but decided not to? Well, I think it was me coming to the realization that my limitations as an individual, I was spreading myself too thin as it related to all the areas within our company that I was overseeing and how many people were reporting to me. And honestly, I was getting exhausted. And I really backed into this sales management role. I, I started to really review some of the needs from a CRM package for the image group and recognize that I don't really have experience with it. So like a lot of the things, I'd probably just go out and spend a lot of money and acquire it and then probably not utilize it. So I thought, well, why don't I go out? I'll put an ad on LinkedIn for somebody with experience with CRM and see what, in fact, out there and who has an interest. And we had tremendous number of replies off of, that's the only place we advertised was LinkedIn. Tremendous number of, of replies. Many people have worked for large organizations, however, were satisfied in large bureaucracies, but had experience with CRM and sales management and had the opportunity to review, narrowed it to eight 
resumes and then five interviews, different people we interviewed and narrowed it down to one person that came out of healthcare of all places. Wow. So, you know, I would encourage you what I, what I believe I did to myself and I take responsibility is I slowed our growth down because I was triaging the things that I needed to do and I wasn't spending time helping our sales group grow their sales any longer. I was pulled into other things that were either of more interest to me or things that might be more aligned with my skills were and not addressing, you know, the lifeblood of my company and everybody else, and that is uh, revenue generation. Right. So I'm certain that we'll turn around in a couple of years and say, why did we wait so long to do this? It requires a roughly 5% growth in our business to liquidate the cost of bringing this person on. But after that, you know, allows me to focus on other things like putting a bag warehouse deal in eight weeks rather than trying to fit everything in in a limited period of time. Right. It sounds like with this individual that you had someone who is not only coming in to be a sales manager for your team, but also someone that was able to specifically come in and implement technology. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, that's an interesting approach because a lot of people, when they're looking for a sales manager or just looking for a sales manager that can come in and can streamline sales and grow salespeople and grow sales at a high level, but are not necessarily coming in with any preference from a technology perspective. So I think you're seeing a shift in the modern sales manager as having some technology tools and technology mojo that they're bringing to the table. So that, that's interesting to hear you say that. Yeah. The other thing we did, not purposely, but we were interested in finding a candidate that came from outside the industry. We become very myopic when we continually listen to ourselves talk about the industry as we've always known it and what we see and what we've heard from others and changing and fresh set of eyes of people that go through other environments is, I think, very healthy for any of our organizations. Yeah, absolutely. I want to jump back to the millennial question. Just one other dimension to this, John and then we can move on. So on one hand, we've addressed how millennial customers are moving online, and you mentioned your 32-year-old son would pay more to buy something online at two in the morning than to have to wait until nine o'clock to deal with a salesperson. So we've got that on one corner, but then on the other corner, you've also got these traditional B2B salespeople at the image group who are continuing to thrive. And what I'm curious about is that if you look at the traditional B2B salesperson at the image group today, presumably many of them are dealing with younger millennial customers. And if that's the case, how are you seeing, on one hand, millennial customers wanting to buy online, but then also wanting to buy through your traditional B2B sales force at the image group? Well, I'm fortunate because six of my B2B traditional sales force members are millennials. Yeah, that helps. So that helps dramatically. We do have times tension between some of our more mature B2B people and their newer and younger clients where our people feel they're just attempting to give them an education regarding some of the things that create value buying through our channel. Sometimes our clients see that as condescending. So that creates some struggles and there have been minor issues, minor, but ones where we've actually considered do we need to make a change in the representation on this account. Listen, I know that I'm not a good fit for, you know, calling on a 26-year-old young person, man or woman. And so having that conversation with some of our people while we're still attempting to get them to focus on growing their books can be sometimes difficult. Oftentimes we don't see ourselves the way others are, are seeing and interacting with us. And so where people believe that they're just really trying to be helpful, sometimes it's seen the other way. And so 
it will be handled through our new sales management as well. You know, the other thing is, is this mature sales force has worked with me for a long time. So they believe they know me and that I know more than they've already heard from me in the past. So this new person may bring a different perspective to them yep. and that they'll be more open-minded to listening to. John, one last one on this millennial piece, and then we promise we'll, we'll move on. So you mentioned that we've all had instances where a salesperson will get a link forwarded from for imprint. It could be any of those types of companies, but we've all been there. We've all seen that. And you mentioned that at some point you think that behavior will stop. What do you think it is about the buying process, the ordering process that for imprint or whomever that online seller was, what failed in that process that allowed the buyer to push that off to the more traditional salesperson in your team or my team? And in your newer venture, how do you plan on capturing that client that tends to forward that on to a real person? I'm not sure that those platforms are failing to get those people to make the transaction. My sense is those are the people that are risk adverse. And so rather than disrupt what their organization's been doing in the past or take a chance that if they make a change that it will be called into question, they go with their path of least resistance and purchase through the channels they have in the past. But I think there's many more that go to those sites and they are not reaching out to us to see whether or not it's something that we might be able to take care of on their behalf. There are some instances where companies have a mandated spend and so they might do the research. You know, there's statistics out there and it's a great range, but the ranges I've heard are all over the 50% that in general, when a buyer contacts us, they already know exactly what item they want and they already know what basically they're prepared to spend on that and that they've done their research before they even get to us. So as more and more people, especially the millennials, just because they've seen this transparency in the online environment their whole lives, as they move more into the workforce and they're given more latitude and they develop more credibility, I think they're going to make decisions that are going to continue to erode some of the business going to the traditional channel. And I don't see anything that's going to stop that. I think that's going to continue. And, you know, not that this was part of the question, but one of the things that I think is a a permanent change in the way people procure is how much control there is through supply chain now. So our experience with many, not all, but many of the people that we deal with who represent supply chain management and our clients are their millennials themselves. And they've gone through training at university level. And the first thing they learn is, is in order for them to really do their job, they've got to take relationship out of the equation. We have a client that we've been selling seven figures to since 1999. I had a meeting with them back in November. I was given one week's notice to fly in for a 50-minute meeting together with another person that was coming from another city, very expensive meeting to attend. You know, we get there, I ask a little bit about the two men we're meeting with neither of which were 30, and their tenure with the company wasn't even 12 months added together. Hmm. These people are now tasked with making a decision about seven figures worth to spend in the promotional product space. I think that's another permanent shift. And just because supply chain management as a degree is fairly new, it's primarily filled by millennials, and that will be continuing to join the workforce. So you have you know, a number of factors that are influencing what I think are a shift, and most of that continues to play into this online solution space. Wow, that is some interesting stuff, John. Thank you. So we promised we'd shift gears a bit, and we will. 
So the image group is part of PeerNet Group, obviously, uh, one of yes. the most respected buying groups in the industry. How important do you feel it is for distributors to be part of some kind of network like that with other distributors? First off, I think it's very important. So I was fortunate to be asked to join PeerNet at a period of time when I originally had a partner I mentioned early and I had just bought him out. And I got contacted by somebody to explain what PeerNet was and it still remains an organization of 17 North American-based distributors, one in Mexico, one in Canada, and 15 U.S.-based, that primarily exist to share best practices. And when you think in terms of that, you know, most of us operate our organizations independently, and so we don't get exposure to how other people may be successfully running their company in our industry. Just the nature of getting principals together three times a year for a period of two to three days to go through an outline and discuss best practices creates great value. The other thing that I believe is that scale has always mattered, but it's beginning to matter even more, especially when you consider the cost of technology itself. The ability to amortize that over a larger number is much easier. So when you get a group like PeerNet together, that creates scale from a supplier standpoint. And so that allows them to take a look at how they interact with the members of PeerNet and how important that may be. I mentioned earlier that 75% of my purchases came from 30 suppliers. Those are all PeerNet partners. We at the Image Group, and this comes in as a carryover from my steel distribution days, is, is frankly, I don't want to be negotiating transactions. I don't want to have to ask for additional price benefits, but I would like to have a strong enough partnership that if I have a need, that I know who I can speak to from a management standpoint and see whether or not they're able to help us in that need. And through PeerNet and the leverage, you know, you know, we have contacts and management of all these suppliers and they're very open to these conversations, especially when it's on a rare occasion versus an every transaction basis. Very good. Thank you. So compliance appears to play a big role in your business. It's a, a real emphasis, and you all even have a CPSIA tab or link across the top of your website, which is obviously very valuable space. Tell us how these current acquisitions and maybe even the future ones, how they fit in with this emphasis. And I guess as a follow-up, do the online buyers that you all are targeting, do they put as much value in knowing the step-by-step -step life cycle of the printed bag from the workers in the Chinese factory to the inks used to print them in Ohio at your location as someone that prefers to work more closely with a, a traditional consultant? I have to tell you, it's too early for me to understand how the buyers at Bag Warehouse even view our focus on safety and social compliance. So I, I don't know I'd be making it up if I were to say something. I can tell you, we started a number of years ago. I happen to be someone that's very interested in not only traveling the world, but reading about it and had a fair amount of exposure to what was happening in Miramar or Burma, however you want to term it. And I'm walking through our warehouse and I see all these cartons of jackets that came out of Miramar and I'm thinking, really? And so I contacted the supplier and I said, what well, can you tell us about the plant where these were made? And, and the long and short of it is that it was really too early to perhaps be asking those questions. All they knew is they sourced it from a place that could deliver reliably at a fantastic price. So we made a policy. So we started out really in the social compliance side of this before we got to the safety compliance. And so, you know, we started and we made a policy within the image group that we're not going to support any product coming from Miramar, and so you needed to ask the question of whatever vendor you were using, country of origin. Then safety compliance started to become part of the narrative in the industry, and we wanted to learn about it and determine about it, and we felt that it just was very in line with our corporate values. 
you know, if you were to go to our site, you'd see that we also talk about sustainability there as well. And so we determined that we were going to set a policy and a procedure and that we were going to drive that through our compensation plan. And so it's pretty simple. We make it very onerous for someone to buy outside of our preferred vetted vendors. And the way we do that is they're welcome to buy from a PeerNet preferred vendor, and PeerNet themselves is working with all of our partners to make certain that we're, well, we're encouraging them to join QCA or to find other ways to be compatible with what some of our needs are from a safety compliance standpoint. So we're looking at that. We make our salespeople bring us, if they feel a need, that they need to purchase product from a vendor that is not part of our preferred network. They need to be able to bring us a safety compliance policy, a social compliance policy, and test reports on the product. That's pretty onerous, and they have to do that book quoted. So because of that, most of them just automatically look to our preferred network to source for their clients. In those events where the product isn't covered by that, they need to go through that whole process. It takes time and energy then it takes review by management to sign off before the purchase order can be produced. And then to take it a step further, if anybody believes it's in their best interest to try and circumvent the system and get an order in somehow for product that's not been certified, we don't pay any commission on it. So most of our people don't like to work for free. And so we find that they comply with the policy. But we're doing it not to make their lives miserable. We're doing it because we think more and more of our clients our interest in the same things that the image group is interested in, and that is is to make certain that the supply chain is safe and it's socially compliant. I was involved in a very large bid in the last five years with one of our large suppliers in the industry, and part of that bid was uh, beyond the 1.2 million t-shirts, there was also 300,000 caps. And we knew what cost we needed to get to. And I'm speaking to a principal of one of the vendors and literally said to me, if I have to meet your safety and social compliance policy, I won't be able to supply it. But if you're able to waive that, I can get this done at the price you need. And so that tells you there's still a lot of discipline that we need in our industry to make certain that people aren't sourcing things. You know, the thing that's really disturbing to me is when they're sourcing it from people who are not fairly treated nor properly paid based on their country's policies and laws. And that still happens. And it's really going to take diligence within the whole industry. And that's why I'm so willing to help my competitors in this area as well because we're all going to be subjected to the same punishment in the marketplace if somebody makes a misstep that's got a high level of visibility in this area. And so from a, a corporate value and from my personal values, and I think my employees and almost all of our customers, uh, this is really important to us. Fantastic. You know, when you're saying that, it, it really makes you think about the industry and the different groups, ASI or PPI or what have you. They put out these top 40 distributors, top 40 suppliers lists. I think sometimes we assume that everybody on that list is sort of vetted and does the right thing. And I'm just curious, you know, if we were to dissect a top 40 supplier list today, I mean, what percentage of those would you say still kind of drag their feet on the compliance piece? I mean, you would think they would start to stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah, I think it's a, a shrinking group. I, I'd say it's probably 20. I'm not looking at the list, but my guess is it's 20% or less. And in fairness, there are some very good suppliers who do a lot in this area. However, they're not necessarily doing it through the channels that some of us are looking at, for instance, QCA. The big thing is, is and the reason we use QCA is you know, it does require independence in testing. And what we are learning from some of the suppliers who haven't chosen to do this because they think it's a redundant cost. 
They don't say because they don't think and believe in safety compliance. They really believe it's redundant to what they're doing. However, what they're also doing is having these things tested in-house at their in-house testing. And that's where there's really an opportunity to have a slip up. You know, you would never think that, you know, a company the size of Volkswagen would have engineers that would find a workaround to meet, you know, emission standards at that level and that scale of an organization. But those things will happen when people's incomes are driven by those types of decisions. And so, you know, we think PPI is doing a wonderful job of raising awareness in this area. We think QCA is a great organization that also works in that area. And ASI themselves, their organization is putting emphasis in safety as well. So I, I think if the tide's raising for everybody, fewer and fewer of them top 40, I believe, are companies we would feel uncomfortable with in that area. And there's still the majority of the suppliers are very small companies. And many of them don't feel they have the resources, financial resources, to actually go through a lot of the testing and having the processes down that are required to meet some of the safety and social compliance. But I think that goes back to comment I made earlier, and that's why we think scale matters, because we don't think you can go forward five years from now and have a company that's supplying into our industry that can't prove those things out. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so as we sort of wind this thing down, thank you thank you for your, your time. It's, it's been fantastic. We happen to notice on your bio that you are a big fan of reggae. And um, it just so happened, I smiled today when I got my box from Amazon, and it had three CDs in it, and one was the only Bob Marley album I never bought back in the day when I bought them all as albums and then rebought them as tapes and rebought them as CDs. Now I'm rebuying them as downloads, but the only one I never had was Survival. And uh, I'm just curious how you think Survival stacks up against some of his better-known works like Exodus, Kaya, Uprising. I think it stacks up well. I, I just think that some things are more popular and the melodies and are more acceptable. But the reason I like reggae is it's happy music. And, you know, it's very unusual to listen to something that would be considered that genre that would not just put a smile on your face. And so, you know, we all deal with a lot of things in life. You know, life gets in the way of our worlds oftentimes. And this is just something that, you know, I learned to like in the 70s and continue to follow it. When I have a chance, there's very little reggae that ever hits Toledo, Ohio. But, um, you know, it does hit Cleveland, Ohio and Columbus, Ohio. Or I listen to it on my XM radio, something that makes me feel good. We agree. <laughs> and what what a great way to, to end the podcast on a, a happy note about music. John, we always like to give our guests the last word. And if people were interested in connecting with you or learning more about you and the Image Group, where would you direct people to? Well, they're welcome to email me at jlevine at theimagegroup.net. They can call me if they like, which is area code 419-930-2223. I'm happy to talk to anybody. I've always believed, regardless of what industry I work in, that talking to everybody gives you a better picture of what's going on, and it doesn't hurt to have friends in a lot of places. That's absolutely wonderful, and it nicely reinforces the values that we've tried to establish at Promo Kitchen with this large community of people that share ideas with one another without any commercial intention, and the podcast is a big part of that, and having wonderful people like you come and share their expertise means a lot, not only to Robert and I, but also all of the chefs and all of the people that are part of this community. So on behalf of everyone, thank you so much, John. This was an absolute pleasure. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. 
And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.